it's always great to have community, but at the same time, like nobody can walk your path but you. And so you might be that person who breaks new ground. Hi, Tisha. Hey, Donnie. And welcome, everyone, to Ursa's Short Fiction, the podcast where we geek out on our favorite short stories. I'm Donnie Walton, author of The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. And I'm Disha Filia, author of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. As always, this show is produced with support from you. Become an Ursa member today by going to ursastory.com slash join. You'll get exclusive bonus episodes and you'll help fund future stories and conversations. Today, we're excited to welcome Jonathan Escoffery to the podcast. He is the author of the 2022 Link Story Collection, If I Survive You, which was a New York Times and Booklist Editor's Choice, an Indie Next pick, and a national bestseller. The collection was long listed for the National Book Award, the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence, the Aspen Words Literary Prize, the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize, and the Penn Gene Stein Book Award, and is a finalist for the Southern Book Prize and the California Bookseller Alliance's Golden Poppy Award. It has been named a best or most anticipated book by The New Yorker, The New York Times, NPR, Entertainment Weekly, People, Time, Oprah Daily, GQ, and elsewhere. Whew. In 2020, <laughs> Jonathan received the Paris Review's Plimpton Prize for Fiction and a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship. He is a Stegner Fellow at Stanford University. And Disha, gosh, I just love so much of what Jonathan said mm-hmm. in, in the interview. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we've talked about these stories at such wonderful yes. depth and really, I feel like, get a sense of his thought process um, mm-hmm. as he was going through them. And really not not so much a thought process, but just coming to these characters as a storyteller, first and foremost, is something he was expressing to us. But we are getting all these ideas and themes and like provocations from the stories, mm-hmm. which I love. Absolutely. And um, as I mentioned on the show, Jonathan and I are both um, Kimbilio Fiction Fellows. So we met in 2017 and um, he was just sort of this quiet presence, at least, you know, from my perspective. And then I read this absolutely electric collection of stories. And yeah. so I couldn't wait to talk to him, you know, what was going on in that mind. He's just such a fantastic storyteller. And and I just appreciate in our conversation that he gave us a glimpse into, you know, his process and his confidence as, you know, I can tell you through these stories about what it's like to be a Jamaican an American man in Miami and, you know, through the lens of this relationships between this father and and two sons over, you know, the span of many years. And I just really enjoyed hearing um, the way that he approaches, you know, characters as well as character development in this kind of organic way. You know, we talked to him about themes and he said, you know, Mm -hmm. the themes are kind of there, but I'm really, you know, thinking about Mm -hmm. what these characters are doing and what they're showing me. And so... Um, I just appreciated that. So great. And another great um, example of a, you know, writer who has been doing it for years, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. you look at this book and it, it's got so many uh, awards and acclaim and, and buzz. I mean, I feel like I was reading about this book months before it was out, which is really, really rare for a story collection. And yet the story mm-hmm. is that Jonathan has been working on this book for so long. And it's a real testament to patience, to, you know, faith in yourself as a writer, and to not being so wrapped up in the publication process, but knowing yourself as a writer and knowing you have a story to tell, which is super inspiring. That's right. And this notion that that short stories don't sell and, you know, our whole podcast yeah. just defies that because that, all we're talking to are, are writers whose, you know, collections um, have succeeded and have dazzled. And so, you know, Jonathan is among those I I'm going to boldly say are out here changing the game. Yes, 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 yes. It is it is a time for the short story. And Jonathan is definitely at the forefront of that. We get pretty spoilery with the stories here. So if you haven't listened to Jonathan's story under the Aki tree, go do that. Then come back here for the deep dive. And with all that out of the way, here is our conversation with Jonathan Escoffery. (laughs) 
Jonathan Escoffery, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited to talk to you. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you both. Woo, we got some questions. I mean, this was such a provocative collection. That's the word that occurred to me before I hopped on this call was basically there's so many things to talk about in this book and we just <laughs> Disha and I have this Google document we share and like it's just like questions uh, yeah. so we're so excited uh, but I want to start with the story that we're actually featuring which is called Under the Aki Tree which was such a beautiful story, very voice-driven and very emotional. And my first question is, you know, the final moments of conflict between the father character, Topper, and Trelawney, who, you know, the collection follows Trelawney's journey um, throughout the stories. The conflict that the father and son have at the end of that story has repercussions through the rest of the book, particularly the scene in which Topper calls Trelawney, quote, defective. And I Mm. gasped when I read that word, and I felt so cut on Trelawney's behalf. And it made me think about how artfully writers have to handle big dramatic moments like this, because it's such a powerful moment. And I thought it was masterful how you put so much into that single word choice. So my question is, how did you come to choose that as the word that would sort of cut Trelawney so deeply and haunt the rest of these stories? And did you play with having Topper say different things or phrases, or was it always that one word? As I recall, I I believe I came to that word first, but I'd written much of the the story collection by the time I had kind of uh, come to that moment in that story. Under the Aki Tree was... I was, I was basically writing under the Aki tree and then the title story at the same time. And those were the last two stories that I, I wound up writing for the oh, collection. Wow. And so I knew that something was kind of simmering in this relationship between Topper and Trelawney. And at a certain point, I had to kind of ask myself, like, what exactly is the tension between father and son here? And what, from Topper's perspective, is his problem with Trelawney? And um, I mean, I I think it's as somebody who maybe relates more to Trelawney and has a kind of life trajectory that runs more parallel to Trelawney, it's easier for me to imagine the different criticisms that he has for his father. But from the father's perspective, I really had to step into Topper's shoes and think about what it is that has maybe disappointed him in terms of his son and the way his son either moves through the world or also the the way the son is kind of casting back a kind of uh, disappointment in terms of the life choices that Topper has made, including that decision, um, along with Sonia, to move the family from Kingston, Jamaica to Miami, Florida. And to me, it seemed like that word defective was what Topper was kind of grappling with. He, he, he seems like, you know, Trelawney knows he doesn't fit <laughs> and he, he feels he doesn't fit within the family. He feels he doesn't really fit in, in this country uh, that he's been born into, the United States. But Topper seems to think that it should have been easier for, for Trelawney And we have the older brother, Delano, kind of created against Trelawney, where Delano, at least for a time growing up, he he finds an easier time of things. I mean, he he also emigrates to the U.S., but he finds it easier to adjust. And for some reason, Trelawney does not. And perhaps that's because he, he, he doesn't have that same claim to his family culture, which is the Jamaican culture. And I think there's, I don't know, I think there's a lot that could be, um, I don't know, unpacked about about that word. But I, I mean, I also just thought, wow, like what a hurtful thing. And I, I think also it might have been one of those moments where he hadn't yet called him anything. And by the time mm. you get to the very end mm-hmm. of that story, I knew what image I wanted to land on. And I think it's okay at this point in the life of the book to, to say what happens at the end of the story, which is that Trelawney responds to being called defective by attempting to chop down his father's beloved Aki tree. His, his father puts 
all of or most of his post-retirement time into taking care of his garden in this uh, dream home that he's built for himself and that Aki tree that he feels like represents his ability to have allowed his legacy to survive after that move from Jamaica to the U.S. And Chawani is um, attempting to kind of uh, say otherwise and 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 end that legacy for for topper but you know that was that was something where i thought it was a really powerful image to land on but Mm -hmm. i needed to earn it i needed to earn that Mm -hmm. kind of like you know what's gonna make a son go to that extent to get back at his father or topper doesn't think chelani understands the significance of the aki tree to jamaicans and to topper specifically and Shalani is picking up that axe and he's saying, no, I, I, I know the exact significance and I'm going to show you that by, by yeah. um, you know, ending this thing. I felt so called out in the scene where Topper serves uh, his son's Aki for the first time. And Shalani um, says, it looks like scrambled eggs because the first time I had Aki, that's what I thought. And I was like, oh, gosh, <laughs> such an American <laughs> response. <laughs> It is. It, it, it's, an, uh, it's an American response, and it's probably, you know, the response I had when my parents first served me Aki and Saltfish. You know, it, it, it's like once you have a intimate relationship with the meal, it's like, oh, of course it's not scrambled eggs. But, you know, from afar, um, when you're first encountering it, that would be our uh, first point of comparison, I think, as uh, particularly as, as Americans. Yep. I still haven't had Aki, so I I know, like, shame on me. I need to, I live in New York City. I need to go somewhere. I was going to say, maybe you have an excuse because you're in a region in the country where it's hard to find, but no. (laughs) (laughs) And in New York City, you can actually get really good um, Aki, really good Jamaican food, period. Well, you have to to text me later and tell me where I should go. Exactly. (laughs) Right, right, I will. Um, I find it fascinating, Jonathan, that this was one of the last stories you said you wrote for the collection because it does have such repercussions for the rest of the stories. And so I'm wondering, Mm -hmm. you know, just in general, how this collection came into the world, how it came together. And and was this sort of like one of the final pieces you need to kind of like make everything cohere? Yeah, I, I think at a certain point I wanted to actually just come out and like say certain things that had again been maybe been in the back of my mind as the the author of this story or maybe had been you know a little bit existing between the lines of, of some of the other stories i knew i wanted for this falling out to take place between you know father and son i knew that i wanted more of an exploration of this family's jamaicanness and what it meant for them to emigrate and what it meant for them to either you know kind of hang on to the culture or not or explore what it means for that culture to be handed down from one generation to the next um and explore what might get in the way of that culture being handed down to the next or even exploring the idea of whether it's worth it whether it's a good thing what's the value of continuing the culture once uh you know, Chelani's born in the U.S. He's he's American. He 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 could just say, ah, eh, you know, that was that was my parents' thing and, and not mine. But I, so I wanted to explore some of those questions, and I really never thought that I was going to be writing from Topper's perspective. I never thought I was going to bring the parents' perspective into this. I really thought it was just going to be Chelani's story altogether. But then Chelani's kind of critical of his older brother, so I thought, well, if he's most critical of him. I wanted Delano to get his say. And, you know, it seems in a way only fair to me that the brother got to um, share some of his points of views. Um, And so the Delano story entered the book 
And then similarly with, with Topper, that with the the biggest uh, tension I think in in the book in terms of characters, if you know, maybe the one of the biggest tensions in the book is Trelawney versus I don't know society or or, or something like that. But um, in terms of the human beings as they're represented on the page, him and his father have that that major tension, and and I thought. It's. I've already been. I had already been exploring that from Chelani's point of view, and I thought, you know, what about because Topper is going to have his own point of view clearly, and he is going to. It's. It's not that the story is meant to say, you know. Well, if you look at it from this side, you know, Topper doesn't do anything wrong. Like that's that's not what I meant to explore. But I also thought if we're going to look at you know topics like immigration and you know what it means for. Um, this Jamaican family to try to survive in the U.S. Like, why not actually start the story in Jamaica? And that that's not that's a part of Trelawney's story, but that isn't really his central story since he wasn't born there. And so um, I decided to kind of back the timeline up to the 1960s, where um, where Topper is growing up, and he believes he has, as a middle class Jamaican, he believes he has all of these options. And then, you know, he starts to build a family and get older. And as we get older, it can seem like our options are becoming uh, more limited because we, we've already made so many choices in our lives and mistakes. And we have to kind of live through the consequences of those choices and mistakes. And, and that's what that's where um, that's where the end of the story leads us with uh, with Topper and Shalani. Mm hmm. Um, I'd love to talk about Trelawney a little bit. This is the character we sort of follow um, throughout the, the collection. And I really loved the ending notes of, of the collection, the title story. And we come to understand that that you and If I Survive You is partly also, I believe, a younger version of Trelawney himself being addressed by an older version at some later point in time. And that made me wonder if you have a vision of how and where Trelawney ends up off the page <laughs> um not not too specific but what i noticed about Trelawney is that he i, I didn't want a character who was just going to be completely the victim of circumstance and you know someone without agency who was just going to be the recipients of you know institutions such as racism <laughs> i wanted him to be also creating some of his own trouble because to me, those are the most interesting stories is when the conflict is coming out of the character. And also I wanted to show he's, you know, if I'm trying to make him feel like a real human being and people of color and, and immigrants, and you know, especially if you're coming from an island in the Caribbean that sometimes, you know, when you ask people, there's, there's actually a moment in the book where Trelawney says explicitly, you know, when you say Jamaica to non-Jamaicans, they give you this list of things that they know about Jamaica and they list sandals and tourism and poverty poor people and um i think quietly in there there's also this idea of like servitude um of, of jamaicans existing to serve colonial desire at an all-inclusive <laughs> resort or, or or something like that and so i i was mm -hmm. it was very important to me that i didn't create these um kind of flat victim characters and as such, I, I had an idea of Chelani kind of internalizing some of these earlier questions that he's asked about his identity, his ethnic identity, racial identity, and having him start to, I don't know, create problems out of that as he internalizes that. And so towards the end, I mean, I, I, for me, I was thinking with the title story, he, he has finally, in a way, you know, he's he's put a roof back over his head in a sense. He he has a job. He has this goal. He's ambivalent about his goal, but he has this goal of buying the family home and proving that his father bet on the wrong son. And he's going to kind of make himself whole again by, by purchasing this house. And I mean, something I was thinking about is that he doesn't have to take that weird job that he finds on the internet on Craigslist to show up and, and watch a wealthy white couple have sex. And, you know, and, and obviously that, that job kind of evolves into to weirder things. 
he he doesn't have to do that at that point. Maybe we see him pick up an, you know odd jobs earlier in the story, and he's living out of his car, and he's literally starving, and he's sleep deprived, and you know maybe one could make the argument that he 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 shows up for that job because he absolutely has to for his own survival. But towards the end, I I wanted him to not have to harm himself and still make that choice to put himself in harm's way, kind of multiple times over. And so when we're looking at the ending, when he's talking to himself, I think it's just that he's recognizing these patterns within himself and that he has been setting himself on a path towards destruction. And, you know, whether his father is the one who started that kind of pattern or, or, or not, it's really up to him to to break out of it as an adult who is really only going to harm himself or at least harm himself most directly if he doesn't break out of these patterns. And so, I mean, that's kind of the point I was writing from. But I mean, I, I think it's still a point of like anxiety. So it's it's like you could imagine that he <laughs> he has possibly already gotten himself into even more trouble at the time that he's talking to his younger self and trying to, you know, convince himself to stop, stop this stuff, stop this pattern, stop, stop this nonsense. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I don't think I thought much more specific than that. I did think there was a kind of, I don't know, maybe limited opportunity for him to make that change um, and possibly a limited opportunity to repair what's been damaged uh, in his relationship with his father. Well, I I felt hopeful for Trelawney. And I think that the self-awareness is like half the battle, like understanding what what your issues are, what your problems are is a big, big part of of doing better. So I, I, I think Trelawney is hopefully thriving out in the world. I'm rooting for him. I see. I, I love to hear you say that because I've, you know, not everybody has gotten the hopeful bit <laughs> part of the ending, and maybe that has to do with you know the life you've you lived, that your your lived experience that you're bringing to the to the book. Mm. <laughs> and I want to talk. I, I want to talk about how all of these you know, stories came together and also just even uh, how you conjured this family, um, these brothers and this father. And I do have a specific question about the first story in the collection in Flux, but could you talk a bit about, you know, when did you know you were building a collection and when did these characters first come to you? I was applying to MFA programs in fall of 2010 and I had my my 10 schools that I'd chosen and I was working on the application and I was meeting with two of my closest writer friends every week. We, we all had the same goal of, of leaving Miami and uh, going away to grad school and uh, we would workshop our stories and I'd been workshopping two other stories and I really thought I had my writing sample together. But about maybe three weeks before the first deadline, I sat down to to write and um i wrote this very short maybe maybe five page version of um a a story that was told from trelawney's point of view in his voice and he was living with uh delano i don't think they had names yet but he was very frustrated with his his brother and things were were falling down in in the house and so we we kind of see that dynamic towards the end of the book but it's it's not a story that actually made it into the book and i felt like i wanted to explore an idea of impossible situations such as uh when you have a family where there's a a kind of clear family favorite and what happens when the family favorite starts to fall down on his responsibilities and what happens when the parent figure won't actually act when the parent figure fails to step in and take action and i and you know again like trying to see everybody's point of view i thought that would be very difficult for a topper to evict his own son and put his son out in the street except that you know after following these characters for a while you you come to learn that or i i discovered (laughs) through uh spending time with these characters that topper kicks his his younger son you know out into the street and so i I thought that would be an even more hurtful thing when delano is falling down on all these responsibilities and topper won't do anything about it even though he he absolutely did something about it when when it was trelawney's turn to to make the mistakes so i wound up writing that story and submitting that to a bunch of mfa programs and wound up at the university of minnesota 
And for a time, I thought that that story was actually something like an opening chapter to a novel. And I kept trying to write forward from that story. And it really, the, the more I thought of it as a novel, the, the more it, it, it wouldn't go anywhere, the more it, it wouldn't work out. Like I, I couldn't write. I was giving myself, I, I guess people say writer's block. I was thinking more like stage fright on the page. I, I it was a kind of humorous story, like there was a kind of biting humor. And I, I thought, well, how do you sustain that? You know, I'd never written a book yet, so I didn't know how I was going to sustain the humor. I, I think I was overthinking things like, you know, it's got to be a funny book or it's got to be this kind of book. And so I just had to take a step back and started exploring these characters through these stories, kind of one story at a time. But, you know, I, it's not as simple as me thinking it's a novel and then deciding it's stories. I, I would write it few stories and as the stories started to be in conversation with each other I, I start, started to put the book back together and think well no it kind of is a novel there's novelesque and then you know I, I would decide otherwise so I, I kind of went back and forth for for years but I started to you know there were times where I was exploring obviously like the same family the same characters but there I hadn't quite figured out what the larger arc of the book was going to be and that was where again working on those final two stories under the Aki tree and if i survive you uh really helped me hammer out what's you know what's the the arc what's chelani's individual character arc and what's the how has his relationship with each of his family members changed throughout the book and what's going to be like as you know satisfying ways to explore these threads and conclude these threads and you know you'd, you'd asked about in flux when i wrote in flux i think that's when i really started to see it like not just like a book because i want to have written a book <laughs> uh, i think mm -hmm. that's where i kind of started but when i wrote in flux i thought oh this is the beginning of your book and now you actually have direction and momentum and a kind of um shape for this world or at least the beginnings of a shape for for this world that you're creating um and and so that was a big discovery for me um in, in discovering that we would meet Trelawney at a much younger age than i had originally been exploring him You mentioned that you started this the process of writing this collection in 2010 as you were applying for MFA programs. The book was released in 2022, so it's a 12-year span. And that's significant because um, I think sometimes people don't understand how long books take. Um, and then I think you may have heard this, as many of us have, from people who go through MFA programs. Some people come out feeling this urgency that as soon as they graduate, they've got to have a book out or be working towards getting a book out in the world immediately. And I'm just curious if you felt that pressure at all or, you know, what did you tell yourself about the process and how long it should take? I, I absolutely felt the pressure. I mean, if, if upon you know, graduation day, if, if someone said, we'll, we'll give you a book deal, but you've got to cut your left hand thumb off. <laughs> I might've, I might've taken the, the offer to be honest. Like I felt, I felt enormous pressure to, you know, prove that I was a, a writer or that the last three years had been spent. Well, I was someone who graduated college as a, a non-traditional student. So I was, I was older. I was, you know, uh, I was almost 30 when I graduated from, from college. And this, uh, I'd, I'd spent a lot of time exploring things that, that weren't, uh, having to do with my education or my, my literary career before college. And then, so I think the point I'm trying to get to is that going to do my MFA, it, it almost felt like it was this correction and I was finally mm -hmm. on the right path. And for mm -hmm. that to be, for the possibility of my MFA not having actually put me on the right path, that, uh, th that possibility really frightened me. And there was also just this difficult thing that, you know, I mean, you, 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 you've asked the question and you, you clearly know that it's, it's hard when you exit those programs, um, especially when, if you are like me, then you, you go to a program like that and it gives you a kind of source of pride. It gives you a bit of uh, a sense that, you know, you're not only are you investing in yourself as a writer, but you know, this is, 
it's, it's a little bit of a validation. And sometimes we take that way too far, <laughs> but I graduated and there, all of the professors, you know, the shout out to, to U of M faculty, they all said, you're not going to have a book when you, <laughs> when you graduate. And one of the problems was that one of the more recent graduates did have a book when he graduated. And, uh, okay. um, and I think, and, you know, and he got like a really big deal and, it, it, it was kind of like, well, if, if he's the exception and I feel I'm exceptional at writing, blah, 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 blah. And you tell yourself these things and uh, kind of focus on all the wrong things versus developing your your, your writing and your your, your practice and, and uh, you know, and possibly your project. Mm-hmm. But I always think, you know, it's, it's more than about just one project. I, I think that's something I didn't quite, I, I, I grasped it, but I wouldn't believe myself if I told myself that, you know. It's like if I if I were to tell a younger version of myself, you know, take your time and it's not about just, you know, the one book. It's like, you know, shut up because you already you you older self have a book. So, <laughs> you know, it's like it's, it's easy to say once you once you actually achieve the thing um, mm-hmm. that it's that it's not that serious. But I graduated. I, I started sending stories out. I started sending stories out that maybe, you know, some of them should have been published and some of them shouldn't have. I don't know. There was uh, just an enormous amount of pressure. But I I think the other aspects or the other angle of it is just like, okay, I went to a fully residential MFA program where we TA'd and we had a stipend and it was a tiny stipend. But at the time, living in Minneapolis, you could you could live on a, a shoestring and mm-hmm. um, after graduation, it kind of hits you like, oh, well, what can I do, though, now? H- how could I actually support myself and live? And, you know, it, it seems like I I had been working towards a degree that was going to be worth something and meant something. <laughs> and then, there were, you know, the rest of the world stepping off, stepping off campus, the rest of the world was kind of saying, like, you know, what's your MFA worth? Like, why do we care? What can you actually do that's um, going to make you a- an employee that we're we're going to invest in and uh, mm-hmm. give a paycheck to and and clearly you know they're they're not offering you universities are not showing up at your MFA graduation saying hey here's your tenure track right. <laughs> position right uh, <laughs> writer who has no publication record mm-hmm. um, here come an adjunct for peanuts <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and I did the math on that and I saw you know oh. I spoke to my adjunct friends and colleagues and it just just even in a, even if I was lucky, I mean, I shouldn't say lucky, but even if I could get it, it's just like, I didn't see how I was going to survive on that. And so, yeah, there was, there was pressure from kind of all angles because mm-hmm. there were, there was a real world pressure of like, how do you survive now? Uh, but then there was also the pressure I put on myself that was like, you, you need to prove that you're a writer. And the way you prove that is through publications and uh, moving towards the book and getting the book out as soon as possible and you know not it wasn't all just in my head because when you talk to people who mm-hmm. maybe aren't writers or even some people who are writers as those years go by as you mentioned it was you know that's 12 years between starting the project and, and having the book come out there's a lot of voices saying hey but what is taking you so long how come <laughs> how come you don't have a book if you've been working on it so long and so yeah i don't know it's a lot it's stressful just to put myself back in those shoes <laughs> I, I, I might be uh, I might be finding myself in fetal position um, at the moment. <laughs> so okay, well we'll shift gears then to my question <laughs> about influx. Um, this is when we at the first story in the collection we meet uh, Trelawney as a young boy. And you show us his confusion and this quest to understand his identity, answering the question, you know, the, the perennial question, what are you? And this is happening as his family is falling apart, which we talked about a little bit. And as they literally and figuratively are picking up the pieces after a hurricane, Hurricane Andrew. And this, his, this boy's grasping in what felt to me like this quiet devastation um, in the face of racism and bullying and ultimately abandonment um, from his father. All of that really hit me, even though I didn't share his particular experiences when I was growing up in Florida. But the way you write 
those really awkward, really lonely times. I felt that. Um, and I remembered things from my own childhood. Um, and so I was in some in conversation with some other writers recently, and one of them said that they don't write children characters because they are too far removed from the experience of childhood themselves. But on the contrary, children are my favorite characters to write. And so I wondered if you could talk a bit about your process and approach to writing young characters. Ooh, that's a good question. I think, you know, I, I wanted to allow for a lot of other voices around Trelawney to be saying these characters, these voices that say, what are you? Or or even, you know, he's confused the first time he hears it and, you know, subsequent times as well. But he, he tries different answers as he's growing up. And I wanted to be able to show how following that thread, following the thread of those questions of how he might answer and how others might deny him his uh, ability to self-identify or, or throw, um, I guess, skepticism his way. I wanted to show how that would actually evolve. And so, you know, part of me was just showing how it felt for him kind of impossible to fit or give the right answer. And I think if, I think if his answers were accepted, he would be very happy just to be included in whatever group that would kind of have him as a kind of uh, survival strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, for for him, I think I felt this a a bit growing up that middle school and and high school can be difficult (laughs) (laughs) if you don't have have your people you know whatever you know whatever that means to you in terms of people that can be just you know clicks or um however it is and my recollection of growing up in in miami which is this you know such a, a multicultural place like people want to know how to categorize you to know whether or not you fit within their group or or not and I, I just kind of wanted to to show the the evolution of that question and and also move Chelani from a point where he's the re- he's the kind of passive recipient of all, all that's happening ar- around him, including his parents' inability to or their inability or maybe their refusal to help clear any of this up. Because when he's you know what are you is is um, cast his way, he he repeats that to his mother, and, and she says, you know, you're a little of this and you're a little of that, and he understands like that's not that's not really going to work out in the world um, that he's found himself in. But as he gets older, so I, so I see in flux. I can't even remember if I had it operate as a. I think I originally had like a part one, part two, and part two mm-hmm. would have been when he went away to college, and so. You know, it's in college, I feel like he starts to participate in some of this stuff a little bit more actively. And so we some of the conclusions that he's he's drawing or some of the questions that he himself starts asking, you know, I I as the author, I don't always agree with where Trelawney is. is, It's like he's doing the math and and the Mm -hmm. the the answer he comes to um or the you know the it's like he he can read the equation but he's coming to like some some interesting places and i i wanted to show you know it's not it, it's not just society because we have a delano on the other hand who's who's not so bothered by any of these questions mm-hmm. and one can kind of imagine that he's he's probably fielding some of that as well but he's just kind of like going to shrug and, and move on with life. And Trelawney is someone who's going to really obsess over these things. And at the same time, mm-hmm. I think it's even maybe even more important that it comes across. He's he, If he's confused, it's not just because he's a, a dumb, confused person. Like this is society is saying all of these right. very contradictory things. Mm-hmm. And in order to be well adjusted, you know, quote unquote, it's like you have to pretend society makes sense. Society mm-hmm. as we've constructed it or like or you know um these different categories as as we've constructed them that they're like perfect and you know the more you play ignorant to that the the better your outcomes seem to be um but (laughs) chelani it's like he's he's smart enough to understand that they don't fit but you know he's not in a position at that earlier stage of the book where he can set those questions aside and 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 move forward in a, in a healthy way, I think.
So one of um, the standout stories for me in this collection was Splashdown. And it stood out to me because it's sort of different from the other stories in that we drift away a bit from this nuclear family and we follow a cousin of Trelawney and Delano's um, named, is it Kuki or Kuki? Uh, Cookie. Cookie, Cookie. We follow Cookie um, attempting to establish a relationship um, with his biological dad, who ends up being very shady. And I kept reading the ending over and over, Jonathan, sort of hoping for a different outcome. (laughs) Like, please tell me this doesn't happen. But I was curious, because it is so different from the other stories, why you felt it was important to include that one in this collection. It was a story that, honestly, I, I, I took it out, I put it back in, took it out, put it back in. Ultimately, I was thinking about these father-son dynamics and what lessons are, are passed down from one generation to the next and how we might break some of these cycles of dysfunction. And I wanted to, you know, thinking about uh, where Chelani and Topper end up at the end of the book. Chelani, in a sense, he, he puts himself in a in a bad situation and then asks his father to get him out of it in a sense and i saw splashdown as operating as this kind of parallel narrative where the stakes are much higher in terms of or you know they're they're more immediate and physically in a a physically observable way um the the stakes are 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 higher and but I, I I wanted to explore those those parallels, and I wanted I, I felt that the book could really use that where we have, you know, Topper in a sense does abandon his his son for a while, <laughs> um, but he he's he's also there at the beginning, and they do have that nuclear family for for a bit, and I, I wanted to explore what that would be like for the character who who doesn't have his father to begin with, and. You know that that initial pain and and injury. Um, I, I wanted to explore what it would look like for them to actually get past that and start to build a relationship. And it's, to me, there's there's always that question that Cookie has, which is, I mean, he has a couple of questions. Yes, what kind of man is my father? And he has that moment where he imagines himself sinking to the, well, I, sh- I should say he has that moment where Topper takes him out into the, the ocean. He takes him out on his boat. He wants to teach him how to catch lobster. And Cookie has a moment where he imagines himself sinking to the ocean floor just to see if ox his father will rescue him and i I think that that desire to see whether or not his father will rescue him is is what we see in his story at the end of that story and um what we're also seeing in trelawney at the end of the book and so i I wanted to explore those those parallels or you know once i had explored those parallels I, i thought they really worked uh well together especially with splashdown coming right about midway through the book Right. So I think this uh, is a good segue into um, a two-part question that I have, and that is about masculinity as a theme that I observed running through the collection. And I'm um, thinking of another example of when uh, Topper refers to his uncle Michael as soft um, more than once in Under the Aki Tree. That's something that kind of jumped out at me. Um, and I was wondering if the focus on masculinity was a conscious or subconscious craft choice on your part. That's part one of my question. And given uh, that there's so much current discourse about toxic masculinity specifically, I'm curious how readers um, have responded to this theme and to your characters as they grapple with these notions of masculinity. Yeah, you know, this is one of those really harder questions for me, um, because when I when I think of masculinity, I'm not always sure what we're talking about um, or, or what the um, parameters we, None of us are. are. Right. right? <laughs> That's the thing, right? I'm, All right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's easier to point out when you, you add the toxic part because it's like, okay, now we have certain behaviors where we can say, you know, this is, this is something that, you know, particularly uh, traditionally it's been men have passed down these, these certain they, they've they've done these actions, but they've also introduced them into society as, as the the things that are supposedly natural and naturally as, uh, associated with with men, with manhood, with masculinity. But I can't really write from a, a point of I guess 
like topics, even as I knew I was, I was definitely exploring father son relationships and difficult dynamics between fathers and sons that I'm, I'm glad you pointed out the part where uncle Michael is called soft. I, I think there are other, you know, ideas that are definitely explicitly kind of meant to be bad ideas that that fathers have in this book or, or topper has in particular when he you know he talks about what makes a man a man is is his testicles basically when when the boys hop into the car to to decide whether or not to take the family dog to get neutered and i think it's a you know it's a clear moment where i see trelawney understanding that this is not the kind of man he wants to grow up into and yet his brother seems to in a sense accept that lesson and and it's almost in that accepting of the lesson that draws him into being more of a man as his father has defined it. And so their relation, like they're tighter for it. And so Chalani tries to pretend he believes such a thing, but it's it's his bucking the, I guess, toxic ma- masculinity that is leaving him on the outs with his his family or it's, it's contributing to, to that. And so I, I think I was taking it, you know, ex- that, I guess that exploration of masculinity, like moment by moment, rather than trying to come to any particularly large conclusions, mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm still figuring some of these things these things out and and then and then when it comes to you know like the more what we might say about what's positive about masculinity as as we've thought about it you know the, like what's what's the value what do we keep oftentimes it's like I, I don't know i don't know if we want those things to be associated like with masculinity it's it's like if we say uh leadership is a, a masculine trait I've heard people say that a lot, and it's like, but mm. is that where we want to land? That right? It's, you know, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't think that is where we we want to land. And so it's it's just like every time I'm I'm picking apart the the positives, I, I could absolutely attribute that across genders. And uh, you know, it's 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 a difficult one for me. <laughs> well, and and I think that's the strength of so mu- so many of the stories is that. You know, as a writer, of course, you know, we're reading it with kind of, you know, two minds for the enjoyment of it. And this, you know, and the, and as Donnie mentioned earlier, you know, the, the provocation, but also, you know, reading from a craft perspective. And I can, yeah. as a writer, I can see you doing different things. But what I really appreciated is that your focus to me seemed to be on telling the best and most interesting story you could tell and not, I am going to, you know, you know, I'm going to conjure up these emotions or I'm trying to stir this up or I'm trying to stir this point. Um, You know, your gifts as a storyteller were just so evident on the page. And I just really appreciate that. Thank you. I mean, that's, that's a really, that's the highest compliment. I think, Uh, you know, I, I I do, I think if we lived in a perfect world, I would still, I I could only, I could still imagine myself as a storyteller, (laughs) meaning like if we didn't have, if we didn't, I want to tell a good story kind of first (laughs) and then, and then, you know, grapple with these, these other, these other things. Um, You know, racism is a, it's a, it's a major source of conflict in, in the book, but if, somehow there were no racism or you know if i lived if i had only ever been in a place that that had exactly one race and we never as such we never had to even think about uh, you know what race we had then i I'd, i would still be wanting to tell great stories and for me as, as the artist as the storyteller you're looking for your content and what's going to be worthy of exploration but in a way that you know is is engaging if not entertaining i think engaging first but as a writer i write to entertain myself to to some extent just because just as a necessity to actually finish anything i I have to be entertained on on some level and i think that's where some of the Mm -hmm. humor comes in there because it's like sometimes i just want you know i want to laugh too (laughs) even as Mm -hmm. i deal with these these grim moments it's like i also want to laugh and if it's all just you know a, a, a grim telling of this character who lives in his car you know, it's going to depress me to the point where I won't want to show back up to my my computer the next morning to to finish the book. So we've talked a lot about the men in in the collection, but there are many fascinating women 
in the stories and kind of hovering around the edges. And I was so curious about Sonia, who is the mother uh, in this little nuclear unit. I was so curious about her and her life as she moves back home. Did you ever think that you would maybe write about Sonia? Was that ever part of the collection? Or did you always sort of know this is a book about men and sort of their relationships with women are, are, are part of it, but not really, I'm not going to do like the perspective. I, I, I have a story. I have multiple stories that I've been trying to write about Sonia. And I, you know, I, I thought there would be a Sonia's story at one point. I mean, again, I, just to walk you through the process, I thought it would be only Trelawney for a time. And then I thought, okay, it's going to be these brothers. And then... Once I realized Under the Aki Tree was actually needed to be told from Topper's uh, perspective, I thought, oh, damn, now I brought the parents into this. So now, you know, is it going to feel uneven and, and with not having a, a Sonya story? And I, I've, I don't know, like part of me, I realized I'd been working on this like father son thing. I didn't want to just kind of throw in a Sonya story out of like obligation. I'm, I really love that character and I didn't want like a, a throwaway story it's it's kind of mean to say maybe but like sometimes i've i've, I've read uh collections where there seems to be like i don't know we're we're, we're trying out another gender uh on the page mm-hmm. and I, I didn't want it to come across that way which is not to say so in my there's a version that kind of lives in my head where I absolutely nailed it. And I, I nailed the Sonya story and it, and it works within the context of the, the rest of the book. I even had thoughts like maybe a Sonya story makes it into the paperback. Ooh. Um, and you know, I guess that's <laughs> if I write fast <laughs> or revise faster, um, you know, maybe, but I mean, another way to look at it though is, you know, just depending on what kind of book it is that you're writing, for me, a lot of these stories, they feel like, to me, it's like, I'm, I'm telling you what it's like to live in the skin of a Jamaican American who grew up in Miami and has had certain experiences. And, you know, it is fiction, but a lot of this is informed by my lived experience. And I thought if I'm bringing that in all these other stories and then I have a story that's going to, to me, it's going to stand out as not my lived in the skin. Maybe because maybe I'm not talented enough <laughs> or, or maybe I just, I don't know what it is to, to, to be a woman in the world. And I, I can research it and I can uh, do my best kind of idea of, of a representation of it. But for me, and maybe, maybe it has to do with all of our conversations about who can write what these days. Yeah. The, there's definitely a kind of anxiety around that. But there's part of me that believes even if I did a great job, it's like, I kind of, I kind of I, I want the great Miami Jamaican American woman writer to 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 write mm. not Sonia's story, mm-hmm. but but mm-hmm. I want her to tell us what it's like to be a, a Jamaican American woman or or a Jamaican woman who's moved her family to to Miami. And you know, I, again, I do believe I will be putting out stories from Sonia's perspective. Mm-hmm. But I, I just I don't think like the takeaway or my goal is going to be. You know, I know best, I know better than every single other person what it is to, to, to be a Jamaican-American woman. You know what I mean? Yeah. I yeah. can step yep. confidently into pretty much any room and say, nobody knows more than me what it's like to be a Jamaican-American man who grew up in Miami. Even mm-hmm. if you ha- if, even if you are a Jamaican-American man who grew up in Miami, like I, you don't know it more than me. You might know it as much as me. Um, right. And that's kind of what I wanted this book to to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like the mark I wanted to leave uh, with this book. And I, what I hear you saying is in this larger question of who gets to write about whom, you know, is not wanting to not being overconfident and not do, wanting to do any kind of harm. And I think it was Toni Morrison or someone that said it's not about having the that person, that character's experience, but having empathy you know, mm-hmm. yeah. but I will right. say that there were two things about S- that Sonia that, you know, stood out to me and that make me confident in your Sonia story. And it was the, when she explains that, uh, her going back to Jamaica and she's tired of taking care of men. And she mm-hmm. says, and who takes care of me? That mm-hmm. rang ah, so true. Yeah. And then, mm-hmm. you know, initially, and, and, and we always tell our, our listeners that there are spoilers. Here's a spoiler. Initially, because of the sequence of the stories, we believe 
that Topper has just decided to leave with his older son and leave Trelawney with Sonia. We find out that Sonia forced him to to choose, to split, pick a boy, pick a son. Oh, devastating. And so I went through such a cycle of emotions as a mother myself when I read that she had she was the one that made the decision because I just thought Topper was all kinds of assholes for her, you know, <laughs> when I thought it was him. And then when I realized that Sonya made it, I was like, yeah, because she her point was, you're not going to just leave and leave me with all of these responsibilities, both children. Mm-hmm. And that felt right to me, too. So for whatever it's worth, <laughs> as you're writing. Yeah. Your- Even though she doesn't have a story, she is wonderfully mm-hmm. complex. She mm-hmm. is so interesting. And um, yeah, I really was sort of cheering for her when she went back to Jamaica. She's like, I'm about to live the rest of my life. <laughs> like, in the, exactly the way I myself. want to. Yeah. Right. Right. And I think from a narrative perspective, I mean, there's mm-hmm. um, if she doesn't make that decision for herself and I'm not saying there couldn't be a story that followed. I mean, I've actually <laughs> we, we could we could have followed her to, to Jamaica. Um, so so there, there is that. But I felt like she would save Chelani. <laughs> the other men in his family, you know, that, that I think that's the question. Like, will his father step up and show up for him? But I, I don't think that's ever yeah. really a question for Sonia. Or even, there's even the moment where he's, you know, he's working in the elderly housing, uh, low-income uh, apartment building, and he's sleeping in the beds of the tenants who have died. And he knows that if he receives a call from his mother, he's going to have to lie and say that everything's okay and he's not living out of his car because he knows that if he actually says that, it's going to put that burden on her to actually save him. And he doesn't right. want to put her in that position. And so, I mean, to me, she's she's very much a part of the the, the heart of, of everything that's going on um, as we, we continue to see her either through uh, the more retrospective stories or via these phone calls. But yeah, I, I, I also, I was rooting for her to not be... <laughs> uh, sunk by these men's bad decisions. And, and she also gets to, I guess another spoiler is she gets to uh, put her learn Italian now tapes to work when she yes. goes to, yeah. to Italy. <laughs> so she gets to have that, that dream of traveling. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Team Sonia. Team Sonia. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> So, Donnie, I promise I won't hog the conversation. I have another question. Um, I just, because I want to follow up to what you were saying, Jonathan, when I asked about the pressure to publish. And I just want to clarify that my, I wasn't suggesting, oh my God, what took you 12 years? Because as somebody who, you know, wrote for 20 years before my collection came out. Yeah. <laughs> but it's more that just, you know, knowing that we have a lot of listeners and, and Donnie and I either teach or just know emerging writers who feel this pressure to publish. And rather than, you know, taking the time that a book needs. And sometimes it is a decade or more. So if Mm -hmm. you, um, and and not not necessarily if, because I'm sure you do, but when you talk to emerging writers, you know, what advice do you have for them around any pressure they might feel or this idea that it's publishing that validates you as a writer? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think you have to, you know, develop the the writer, and you know, the, I think the project, the right project, will hopefully follow. I, I do think there's something to being, and I don't necessarily get into the weeds of, with, of this with my my students, but I I know, you know, as much as I've, I've showed up to a lot of interviews, and and not including this interview because you haven't asked me this, but there's a, there's a lot of um, this kind of assumption that I'm like I just showed up to write about my life because that's like all I have to say in, 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 in book form, like this is just a, an autobiography that I've written. It, it definitely isn't. But I think there was a lot of um, strategy in terms of thinking about, well, where is there a gap in the market um, mm. that I know that I can be impactful and with my publication and i can say mm-hmm. you know we haven't seen a book about jamaicans from a jamaican's perspective in miami um from the second generation second gen american mm-hmm. <laughs> second gen immigrant perspective and you know thinking about that and thinking about what kind of book conversely that is a market question but maybe the better element of the decision making is like what kind of book can you actually continue to show up in the event that your book takes 10 or 20 years to write 
and what's going to, you know, sustain you as the the person who's showing up to write. For for me, I know if I were if I had been writing about subject matter that I I just really didn't care about and I didn't think was important, then this would have been a a project that I would have I would have abandoned it in search of something else. Um, so you know, developing your yourself, your your practice, thinking of it as a, a kind of practice, I think is is helpful versus thinking of uh, product. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I mean, there's, there's something, it, it, it kind of depends where you are in the process, but I think planning for success can be a kind of good thing. I know as a story writer, part of that pressure that I felt over all those years was that if I was going to put out a story collection, even if I did have the book, it was kind of like, yeah, but where's your novel? <laughs> mm-hmm. So there was kind of this like, well, dang, I haven't, I haven't even gotten the, the story collection published yet and people are saying that even when i do it's not going to be worth anything until i write a novel you know so now i feel two steps behind and so like you know sometimes it's, it's great to have i mean it's always great to have community it's great to have people around you who might be you know a, a half step ahead two steps ahead um listening to their wisdom it, it can be really good for you but at the same time like nobody can walk your path but you and so like you might be that person who breaks new ground i was very happy with my my deal as a story a story writer and so i and and i even see ways in which i could have in my not just my my book but just in my career there's a way in which i kind of was down on myself because so many people were like well you just write stories versus like you know you're not a novelist yet you haven't graduated to being a novelist yet and so you know just just believing in yourself i suppose having a a kind of relentless determination is is what is probably going to get you through yeah i don't know i I tell my students a lot of (laughs) a lot of things depending (laughs) on the the context Um, well tell them you may have changed the game because you know that more and more of us are coming out with our first books as story collections at a certain point we got to stop this nonsense that you gotta have a novel because you're you just proved that's not true right um (laughs) i I think so yeah (laughs) it's really weird when you're uh, and i I don't know how how either of you feel about this at, at the distance you are from putting your first books out but i'm still like kind of in the the throes i i think and so i don't know some sometimes people say oh you're having a successful something something <laughs> the book is successful or you're having a successful run or a successful debuting and it's like i, I can't deny it but at the same time i sometimes wonder like oh am i is it like i don't know yet nobody i mean even when they do tell you you are you know i don't know if i believe it i guess maybe i'm still waiting for my my plaque or something to show, arrive in the mail to say like <laughs> right. you know, did it kid you, right. <laughs> you, you well, know? i think some of us are just traumatized after a decade or more because you know it's publishing yeah. is scary and there's so much rejection and we hear all these horror stories oh, yeah. and you're kind of Maybe waiting for the other shoe to drop. And what does success look like? Because there's so many measures, you know, there's so many awards, there's so many lists, there's so many, you know, and so it is hard to know where you kind of stand. But I think this is true of Donnie and it's true of me. One thing I know, and it sounds like you're doing the same thing. We just kept working, you know, the book came out and we didn't stop. We just kept going, you know, so That's, I the, think yeah, that's the best thing to do. Right. Because yeah. I think sometimes the work, the work grounds you. Right. It exactly. Does. And I think in other arenas, maybe something happens and it's a big success and you stop working because your work is like building, you know, a ship or something. I don't know. But with writers, like we just keep going, <laughs> you know. Yeah. You keep writing. And one thing really important, you keep reading as well. And so Mm, one thing, Jonathan, I wanted to ask you last question before we let you go. Where do you look for inspiration in terms of reading? Um, Do you have a favorite story collection or any collections you've loved recently? While I was writing the book, I, I read a lot of story collections that were kind of linked by character or theme, place, trying to just see what other authors have have done. Two books I I return to a lot because of the way they're constructed, but also because of the powerful sentences, lean sentences, which I'm a fan of. At least I knew I wanted that for my my first book anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, Jesus' Son by Dennis Johnson is one that I've, I've read over and over again. There are times when, you know, I'll read a beautiful sentence and 
and I know exactly what what you know the intention of the the author is and and the you know the, the character who's saying it and then sometimes it's like there's this almost slippery like it's beautiful and I kind of understand it but there's something that's just like a little bit out of reach and I I think the most perfect books are the books that are imperfect <laughs> they're mm. imperfect they you know they 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 strive for something that's just like beyond comprehension um mm. and the other book i was gonna mention uh it's you know I, i've heard justin torres say that it was constructed as a, a story collection i believe but it's published as a novel which is we the animals yeah. um mm-hmm. and I, I talk about the book so much that i'm sure i'm gonna get a, a cease and desist order <laughs> at any moment now <laughs> Uh, that I mean, you know, that, but it's, it's it's such beautiful writing about a family who has their, their their problems, and you know, those are those are some some favorites for the you know the canon. Love it. Well, Jonathan, this has been fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for Thank joining you. us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a real pleasure. I love what you're doing here. Uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. We will. And we're looking forward to the next collection and Sonia and anything yes, you do Yes, that's Sonia's story. <laughs> <laughs> keep us posted. Uh, fingers crossed. Yes, <laughs> I will. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. If you like what we're doing at URSA, be sure to share this podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to support us directly, become an URSA member by going to ursastory.com join. You'll help fund production of this show and keep us going. We'll see you next time.